The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Hoare, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, May 10th, 2020, on the basis of 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 22. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. It's only happened to me once, but I remember it very vividly. I went out to get in the mail just like I would any other day, but this day there happened to be a letter addressed to me from the county courthouse. I was being summoned for jury duty. Now, I don't remember exactly the thoughts that went running through my mind in that moment, but I'm guessing they weren't entirely positive. In fact, when I went into the courthouse the following week to serve jury duty, I'm pretty sure everyone who was there sort of felt the same way. As I looked around the room, I didn't see one person, including myself, who seemed to think that this was just great, that this was wonderful, that that day when that letter had shown up in their mailbox was the luckiest day of their entire life. That's how we feel when we get summoned in for jury duty. I can only imagine what it would be like to get a different sort of letter from the county courthouse, the kind of letter that they don't just drop into your mailbox, but that they make sure you get served and that you receive in person, the kind of letter that lets you know that you are being summoned not to sit on a jury, but to stand for a trial, that you are being sued by someone or charged with something. If being summoned for jury duty is sort of an unpleasant experience, I can only imagine what it would be like to get called in to stand trial. Well, believe it or not, that's exactly the sort of thing that the verses that are in front of us this morning tell us we should be ready for. In these verses, the Apostle Peter tells us that as we live our lives as Christians, there's a pretty good possibility that we are going to get called in to stand trial. Not in any sort of official court of law, but in the unofficial courts that are convened each and every day in our daily interactions. That people might question or cross-examine the things we believe as Christians. People might level accusations or even criticisms about the way in which we live. Peter wants us to know that we should be ready for that, that that could in fact happen to us. And not only that, but Peter doesn't want us to view that as any sort of negative thing, as something that we should dread or be concerned about. He doesn't want us to view it as one more reason we might be tempted to give up that important, powerful thing that we've been talking about throughout Easter. He doesn't want us to view it as one more reason we might be tempted to give up hope. No, instead, once again, Peter is going to remind us that because Jesus is alive, hope is also alive, and that is true even when we are called to stand trial for our faith. In fact, as we look at these verses from 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, Peter's encouragement to you is going to be this, that you are blessed when you get called to take the stand. Now, why might that sort of thing happen in our lives? Well, Peter has been telling his readers, he's been telling us about the hope that we have in Jesus and the way in which that hope causes us to live. And the reason we might get called to stand trial for that hope is because of how different that hope is, the hope that is in us, from the hope that is in so many others. Anytime there are competing versions of something as important as hope, those competing versions 
can't just peacefully coexist. There's naturally going to be a tension between them. In fact, this sort of thing happens all the time. Let's say that that right now one person thinks that the best path forward for us in our country is that the quarantine needs to continue, that everyone needs to stay at home and everything needs to stay shut down. But another person thinks that, no, we need to start opening things back up. People need to get back to work. They need to be able to make money. Those competing views of our best path forward can't just peacefully coexist with one another. There's naturally a tension between them. In fact, each one is a threat to the other. Well, because the hope that is in us is so very different from the hope that is in so many others, there's naturally going to be a little bit of tension And that's why, as Peter says, we just might have to suffer for that. The specific type of suffering Peter is talking about in these verses is verbal suffering. People might question or challenge the hope that is in us. They might criticize or even ridicule the way in which that hope causes us to live. In one way or another, the hope that is in us might be called to stand trial, calling us effectively to have to take a stand. So let me ask, has that ever happened to you in your life? Out of all the ways in which the Bible talks about Christians suffering for their faith, perhaps this type of suffering, this verbal type of suffering, is one that we can actually relate to. Now, it's worth pointing out right off the bat that sometimes we as Christians can bring a whole lot of suffering onto ourselves. For example, rather than being criticized for the hope of the better, brighter future that is in store for us in heaven, we might face criticism for the better, brighter future that we are trying to orchestrate here on earth. In other words, we turn our Christian faith into just another form of social or political activism. Or perhaps, rather than being criticized for our conduct and our behavior, the way that Jesus tells us to live, we instead are criticized because we expect that same conduct and even enforce that conduct with the rest of the world around us, as if somehow Jesus has appointed us to be the world's morality police. Yes, sometimes we as Christians can be very good at bringing all kinds of suffering onto ourselves. That's not what Peter is talking about in these verses. He's talking about the hope that we have in Jesus and the good that we do that Jesus actually commands us to be doing. So, for example, what might happen if at your job you have been selected to take over for your boss when he retires and for several years you are being groomed for that job? What happens if when that time of transition finally arrives, you actually turn the position down? Why? Because for the past few years, you have seen what it has done to your boss's health, to your boss's family life, to your boss's levels of stress. And as much as that new job title and that hefty raise in salary might be nice, you know that those are not the be-all and end-all of life. Do you see how there's a little bit of tension between the hope that is in you and the hope that is in your boss? Or what might happen, for example, if when all of our kids' sports and all of their activities are are back up and running at high speed in the very near future. And sure enough, there's a tournament or a game or a practice that is scheduled for Sunday morning. And it's your child who is the one child on the team who is not there. Why? Because 
far more important for you than your child making the varsity team or getting the college scholarship is that your child would stay close to Jesus and stay strong in their faith for the rest of their life. Do you see how the hope that is in you might be in a little bit of tension with the hope that is in some of the other families on the team? Or let's say you have a circle of friends or an extended family that likes to use these warm summer months to enjoy every form of outdoor recreation under the sun. Every weekend is another trip here or there. Every weekend is like another mini vacation. And eventually, you decide that you're not going to try to keep up. Why? Not only because of the way that you manage your time, but because of the way that you manage your money. Because you've decided to take some of what God has given to you and invest it. In fact, invest it as as generously as you can, not just in all kinds of earthly fun, as nice as that might be, but to invest it in the eternal work of Christ's church. Do you see how the hope that is in you might be in a little bit of tension with the hope that is in those other people? I'm not sure what exactly it's going to look like. I'm not sure when that summons will come. But I do know that Peter wants us to be ready. That when people get a glimpse of the unique hope that is in you, a hope so different from the hope that is in so many others, they are going to notice, and there's a very real possibility that that hope is going to be put on trial, that you are going to get called to take the stand. And so why, if and when that day arrives, why are you actually blessed, as Peter says? Why is that a day that you would not only want to be ready for, but a, a day that you would actually look forward to and a day that you would readily embrace? Well, because it's the day when you stand trial, it's the day that gives you an opportunity to do exactly what Peter says. Here's what Peter tells us to do. He says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So getting called to take the stand gives us an opportunity to make our defense. We might picture someone who is accused of a crime that they didn't commit, where the accusations are all over the media and the rumors are spreading around town and everyone just kind of assumes that the person did it even though they didn't. For legal reasons, that person doesn't actually have the opportunity to speak up in their defense until the trial actually gets going and they have an opportunity to take the stand. And so when that day finally arrives, boy, what a relief. Finally, the day has come where they can clear their good name, where they can issue their defense. So when the hope that is in us gets put on trial, Peter says, it gives us the opportunity to talk about that hope. And not only that, but it gives us the opportunity to do so in the way in which Peter tells us to do so. To do so with gentleness and respect. You see, if two competing versions of hope really do have this tension between one another, and if we know that our hope not only has a defense, but has a rock-solid defense, realize that that defense also reveals something about the hope that other people might have. That perhaps it's not as solid and not as certain as they think it is. That it's not as valuable and as worthwhile as they've been treating it. 
for something that's as important and as personal as our hope, that can be a, a tough thing to hear. So realize that the very defense that you are giving for the hope that is in you might also be revealing that the hope that is in them is in fact quite fragile. So take that into account. Deliver that defense, as Peter says, with gentleness and respect. You see, anytime two competing versions of the same reality sort of create this tension between two people, it's very easy for either side to get very defensive. In fact, earlier when I was talking about job promotions and kids' activities and summer vacations, maybe, maybe you even felt a little bit that way, a little bit defensive. When our hope, the hope that is in us, is put on trial, it's very easy for us to feel as though it's not just the hope in us that is being put on trial, but that we ourselves are being put on trial. And maybe that explains why so often we are so bad at doing what Peter tells us to do. It might be easy for us to think as though Peter is kind of telling us to do two separate things that we need to keep in balance. On the one hand, to be ready to speak up about our faith, but to do so with gentleness and respect. So not too much of one, but not too much of the other. It might also be tempting for us to think that when we fail to do what Peter tells us to do, that we fail in two completely opposite ways. That on the one hand, we might be completely reluctant and completely shy to ever talk about the hope that is in us. Or on the other hand, we might be more than willing to talk about that hope, but to do so harshly and to do so in a way that is critical of opposing views. Realize that both of those things are just two sides of the very same coin. Both of them come from a place of defensiveness. Both of them are an indication that the person who is doing those things isn't very sure, isn't very certain about the hope that they have. In fact, the very same person might at certain times shy away from ever talking about their faith. On the other hand, they might try and compensate for their uncertainty by trying to win an argument with nothing more than volume and vitriol. Thankfully, the Apostle Peter points us to the solution for both sides of that similar problem. He again takes us back to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Peter reminds us that Jesus was subject to the very same type of verbal suffering that he's telling us we need to be ready for. Jesus, as well, was called to stand trial. In fact, he was not just accused of, he was convicted of and sentenced for crimes that he did not commit. He was put to death on a cross as if he were a criminal, making it completely apparent that he was guilty of the crimes for which he was being put to death. And yet three days later, Easter revealed the truth about Jesus. Easter revealed that Jesus had suffered and died for crimes that were not his own. Easter revealed that the slander that had been issued against Jesus was completely unwarranted. In fact, the Apostle Peter tells us that Jesus did exactly the same thing that Peter is telling us to do. That after Jesus rose from the dead, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. That he went and he appeared to the spirits who are locked up in that prison and he made his defense. He revealed the truth about himself. Now, as Peter tells us, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God where he sits far above even the angels and far above any suspicion 
about his guilt or his innocence. Easter has once and for all cleared Jesus' name of any and all charges. And Peter wants us to know that that is not just good news for Jesus. That's also incredibly good news for us. Why? Because in our baptism, God has taken the death and resurrection of Jesus and he has made it ours. Here's what Peter says. Baptism now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just as Easter cleared Jesus' name of any and all charges against him, so also in baptism God has cleared our names of any and all charges against us. In baptism, God took the dirt that stuck to us, not the dirt that stuck to our flesh, but the dirt that was stuck to our soul, the dirt that otherwise would sully our good name before God. In baptism, God took that dirt and he washed it all away. In fact, Peter tells us that in our baptism, God did this very thing. God issued a defense. God gave testimony. He gave a pledge about us. He looked at our conscience and he declared it clean. So two events that really happened at a real time and in a real place, Jesus' resurrection from the dead and our baptism into Jesus' death and resurrection, these two things are the basis for our hope. And because they are, while it might be true that our hope is put on trial and we are called to take the stand, it is also true that we can never be put on trial again. That trial has already taken place and that verdict about us has already been given. In baptism, God looked at us and declared us not guilty. And friends, that's exactly why you and I are able to do exactly what Peter tells us to do. That we can be prepared to give our answer and do so with gentleness and respect. That we can be prepared to give our defense without any need to be defensive. And friends, that's why when you get called to the stand, you are blessed. You see, it gives you an opportunity to do something that is so rare in our world today. And it gives you an opportunity to do something that is so desperately needed in our world today. It gives you an opportunity to talk about something that is important and very personal, something about which you feel strongly and care deeply, and yes, to talk about it with people who may see things the exact opposite way, but it gives you an opportunity to do so without needing to be defensive, without needing to rely on volume and vitriol to win your argument, without needing to demonize or belittle people who see things the opposite way. And because that is the case, realize that when you give that message, people will be hearing that message, yes, from the words that you say, but also from the way in which you say them. That when you deliver that message, when you are called to take the stand, both your defense and your complete lack of defensiveness will be speaking in perfect harmony. With one voice, they will be telling people about a hope that is real that is certain, that is alive, and yes, that is superior to any competing version people might be offered by the world around them. And so, yes, when you are called to take the stand, as Peter says, you are 
blessed. But that also means that when you are called to take the stand, other people will be blessed as well. Amen.